everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sleep and Relax ASMR. This episode, we pick up where we left off from the Canterville Ghost, which was Chapter 4, and we should be able to finish the uh, novel. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the first three chapters. Really interesting little uh, story. Hopefully you've enjoyed it, and hopefully the uh, payoff at the end is uh, worth it. So let's jump in. Chapter 4. The next day, the ghost was very weak and tired. The terrible excitement of the last four weeks was beginning to have its effect. His nerves were completely shattered, and he started at the slightest noise. For five days, he kept to his room, and at last made up his mind to give up to the point of the blood stain on the library floor. If the Otis family did not want it, they clearly did not deserve it. They are evidently people on a low material plane of existence and quite incapable of appreciating the symbolic value of sensuous phenomena. The question of phantasmic apparitions and the development of astral bodies was of course quite a different matter and really not under his control. It was his solemn duty to appear in the corridor once a week and to give her from the large oriel window on the first and third Wednesday of every month and he did not see how he could honorably escape from his obligations. It is quite true that his life had been very evil, but, upon the other hand, he was most conscious in all things connected with the supernatural. For the next three Saturdays, accordingly, he traversed the corridors usually between midnight and three o'clock, taking every possible precaution against being either heard or seen. He removed his boots, trod as lightly as possible on the old worm-eaten boards, wore a large black velvet cloak, and was careful to use a rising sun lubricator for oiling his chains. I am bound to acknowledge that it was with a good deal of difficulty that he brought himself to adopt his last mode of protection. This last mode of protection, I should say. However, one night, while the family were at dinner, he slipped into Mr. Otis's bedroom and carried off the bottle. He felt a little humiliated at first, but afterwards was sensible enough to see that there was a great deal to be said for the invention, and, to a certain degree, it served his purpose. Still, in spite of everything, he was not left unmolested. Strings were continuously being stretched across a corridor over which he tripped in the dark, and on one occasion, while dressed for the part of Black Isaac or the Huntsman of Hogley Woods, he met with a severe fall through treading on a butter slide, which the twins had constructed from the entrance of the tapestry chamber to the top of the oak staircase. This last insult so enraged him that he resolved to make one final effort to assert his dignity and social position, and to determine to visit the insolent young Etonians the next night in the celebrated character of Reckless Rupert, or the Headless Earl. He had not appeared in this disguise for more than seventy years, in fact, not since he had so frightened pretty Lady Barbara Modish by means of it, that she suddenly broke off her engagement with the present Lord Canterville's grandfather and ran away to Gretna Green with handsome Jack Castleton, declaring that nothing in the world would induce her to marry into a family that allowed such a horrible phantom to walk up and down the terrace at twilight. Poor Jack was afterwards shot in a duel by Lord Canterville on Winesworth Common, and Lady Barbara died of a broken heart and two ridge wells before the year was out. So in every way, it had been a great success. It was, however, an extremely difficult make-up, if I may use such a theatrical expression in connection with one of the greatest mysteries of the supernatural, or, to employ a more scientific term, the higher natural world, 
and it took him fully three hours to make his preparations. At last everything was ready, and he was very pleased with his appearance. The big leather riding boots that went with the dress were just a little too large for him, and he could only find one of the two horse pistols. But, on the whole, he was quite satisfied, and at a quarter past one he glided out of the wainscoting and crept down the corridor. On reaching the room occupied by the twins, which I should mention was called the Blue Bedchamber, on account of the color of its hangings, he found the door just ajar. Wishing to make an effective entrance, he flung it wide open with a heavy jug of water, when a heavy jug of water fell right down on him, wetting him to the skin and just missing his left shoulder by a couple of inches. At the same moment, he heard stifled shrieks of laughter proceeding from the four-post bed. The shock to his nervous system was so great that he fled back to his room as hard as he could go, and the next day he was laid up with a severe cold. The only thing that all consoled him in the whole affair was the fact that he had not brought his head with him, for, had he done so, the consequences might have been very serious. He now gave up all hope of ever fighting this rude American family, and contented himself, as a rule, with creeping about the passages in his list slippers, with a thick red muffler round his throat for fear of droughts, and a small arquebuse, I don't know what that means, in case he should be attacked by the twins. The final blow he received occurred on the 19th of September. He had gone downstairs to the great entrance hall, feeling sure that there, at any rate, he would be quite unmolested and was amusing himself by making satirical satir, satirical remarks on the large Cerrone photographs of the United States minister and his wife, which had now taken the place of the Counterville family pictures. He was simply, but nearly clad in a long shroud, spotted with churchyard mold, had tied up his jaw with a strip of yellow linen, and carried a small lantern and a sexton spade. In fact, excuse me. In fact, he was dressed for the character of Jonas the Graveless, or the corpse snatcher of Chertsey Barn. One of his most remarkable impressions, impersonations, and one which the Cantervilles had every reason to remember, as it was the real origin of their quarrel with their neighbor, Lord Rufford. It was about a quarter past two o'clock in the morning, and as far as he could ascertain, no one was stirring. As he was strolling toward the library, however, to see if there were any traces left of the bloodstain, suddenly there leaped out on him from a dark corner two figures who waved their arms wildly above their heads and shrieked out, Boo! in his ear. Seized with a panic, which under the circumstances was only natural, he rushed for the staircase but found Washington Otis waiting for him there with a big garden syringe and being thus hemmed in, his, in by his enemies on every side and driven almost to bay. He vanished to the great stove, which, fortunately for him, was not lit, and had to make his way home through the, flu through the flues and chimneys, arriving in his own room in a terrible state of dirt, disorder, and despair. After this, he was not seen again on any nocturnal expedition. The twins lay in, it, lay in wait for him on several occasions and strewed the passages with nutshells every night to the great annoyance of their parents and the servants. But it was of no avail. It was quite evident that his feelings were so wounded that he would not appear. Mr. Otis subsequently resumed his great work on the history of the Democratic Party on which he had been engaged for some years. Mrs. Otis organized a wonderful clam bake, which amazed the whole county. The boys took to lacrosse, euchre, poker, and other American national games, and Virginia rode about the lanes on her pony, accompanied by the young Duke of Cheshire, who had come to spend the last week of his holidays at Canterville Chase. It was generally assumed that the ghost had gone away, and in fact, Mr. Otis wrote a letter to the effect 
to that effect to Lord Canterville, who in reply expressed his great pleasure at the news and sent his best congratulations to the minister's worthy wife. The Otises, however, were deceived, for their ghost was still in the house, and though now almost an invalid, was by no means ready to let matters rest, particularly as he heard that among the guests was a young Duke of Cheshire, whose grand-uncle, Lord Francis Stilton, had once but a hundred guinea, guineas with Colonel Carberry that he would play dice with the Canterville ghost, and was found the next morning lying on the floor of cardroom in such a helpless, paralytic state that though he lived on to a great age, he was never able to say again but double sixes. The story was well known at the time, though, of course, out of respect to the feelings of the two noble families, every attempt was made to hush it up, and a full account of all the circumstances connected with it will be found in the third volume of Lord Tattle's Recollections of the Prince Regent and His Friends. The ghost, then, was naturally very anxious to show that he had not lost his influence over the Stiltons, with whom, indeed, he was distantly connected. His own first cousin, having been married on Sacon's nose, I don't know what that means, to Sieurs de Boucle, from whom, as everyone knows, the Dukes of Cheshire are lineally, lineally descended. Accordingly, he made arrangements for appearing to Virginia's little lover in his celebrated impersonation of the Vampire Monk, or the Bloodless Benedictine. A performance so horrible that when old lady Startup saw it, which she did on one fatal New Year's Eve in the year of in the year 1764, she went off into the most piercing shrieks, which culminated in violent epilepsy, and died in three days after disinheriting the Cantervilles, who were her nearest relatives, and leaving all her money to her London apothecary. At the last moment, however, his terror of the twins prevented his leaving his room, and the little duke slept in peace under the great feathery canopy in the royal bedchamber, and dreamed of Virginia. Chapter 5 A few days after this, Virginia and her curly-haired cavalier went out riding on Broccoli Meadows, where she tore her habit so badly in getting through a hedge that on their return home she made up her mind to go up by the back staircase so as to not be seen. As she was running past the tapestry chamber, the door of which happened to be open, she fancied she saw someone inside, and thinking it was her mother's maid, who sometimes used to bring her work there, looked in to ask her to mend her habit. To her immense surprise, however, it was a Canterville ghost himself. He was sitting by the window, watching the room go over the yellowing trees fly through the air and the red leaves dancing madly down the long avenue. His head was leaning on his hand, and his whole attitude was one of extreme depression. Indeed, so forlorn and so much out of, his, out of repair did he look that little Virginia, whose first idea had been to run away and lock herself in a room, was filled with pity and determined to try and comfort him. So light was her footfall and so deep his melancholy that he was not aware of her presence until she spoke to him. I am so sorry for you, she said, but my brothers are going back to Eton tomorrow, and then if you behave yourself, no one will annoy you. It is absurd asking me to behave myself, he answered, looking around in astonishment at the pretty little girl who had ventured to address him. Quite absurd. I must rattle my chains and groan through keyholes and walk about at night. If that is what you mean, it is my only reason for existing. It is no reason at all for existing, and you know you have been very wicked. Mrs. Umney told us, the first day we arrived here, that you had killed your wife. Well, I quite admit it, said the ghost petru petruant petulantly. But it was a purely family matter, and concerned no one else. It is very wrong to kill anyone, 
said Virginia, who at times had a sweet Puritan gravity, caught from some old New England ancestor. Oh, I hate the cheap severity of abstract ethics. My wife was very plain, never had my ruffs properly starched, and knew nothing about cooking. Why, there was a buck I had shot in Hogley Woods, a magnificent pricket, and do you know how she had it sent up to the table? However, it is no matter now, for it is all over, and I don't think it is very nice of her brothers to starve me to death, though I did kill her. Starve you to death? Oh, Mr. Ghost, I mean, Sir Simon, are you hungry? I have a sandwich in my case, would you like it? No, thank you. I never eat anything now, but it is very kind of you, all the same. And you are much nicer than the rest of your horrid, rule, rude, vulgar, dishonest family. Stop, cried Virginia, stamping her foot. It is you who are rude and horrid and vulgar. And as for dishonesty, you know you stole the paints out of my box to try and furbish up that ridiculous bloodstain in the library. First you took all my reds, including the vermilion, and I couldn't do any more sunsets. Then you took the emeralds and the chrome yellow, and finally I had nothing left but indigo and Chinese white. I could only do moonlight scenes, which are always depressing to look at and not at all easy to paint. I never told on you, though I was very much annoyed, and it was most ridiculous. The whole thing, for whoever heard of emerald green blood. Well, really, said the ghost rather meekly, what was I to do? It is a very difficult thing to get real blood nowadays, and as your brother began it with all the Paragon detergent, I certainly saw no reason why I should not have your paints. As for color, that is always a matter of taste. Canterpils have blue blood, for instances, for instance, the very bluest in England, but I know you Americans don't care for things of this kind. You know nothing about it, and the best thing you can do is emigrate and improve your mind. My father will only will be only too happy to give you a free passage, and though there is a heavy duty on spirits of every kind, there will be no different no difficulty about the custom house, as the officers are all Democrats. Once in New York, you are sure to be a great success. I know lots of people there who would give a hundred thousand dollars to have a grandfather, and much more than that to have a family ghost. I don't think I should like America. I suppose because we have no ruins and no curiosities, said Virginia satirically. No ruins, no curiosities, answered the ghost. You have your navy and your manners. Good evening. I will go and ask Papa to get the twins an extra week's holiday. Please don't go, Miss Virginia, he cried. I am so lonely and so unhappy, and I really don't know what to do. I want to go to sleep, and I can't. That's quite absurd. You are merely to go to bed and blow out the candle. It is very difficult sometimes to keep awake, especially at church. But there is no difficulty at all about sleeping. Why, even babies know how to do that, and they are not very clever. I have not slept for three hundred years, he said sadly, and Virginia's beautiful blue eyes opened in wonder. For three hundred years I have not slept, and I am so tired. Virginia grew quite grave, and her little lips trembled like rose leaves. She came towards him, and kneeling down aside, looked up into his old withered face. You poor ghost, she murmured. Have you no place where you can sleep? Far away beyond the pine woods, he answered in a low, dreamy voice. There is a little garden. There the grass grows long and deep. There are the great white stars of the hemlock flower. There the nightingale sings all night long. All night long he sings, and the cold crystal moon looks down, and the yew tree spreads out its giant's arms, its giant arms over the sleepers. Virginia's eyes grew dim with tears as she hid her face in her hands. You mean the garden of death? she whispered. Yes, death. Death must be so beautiful. To lie in the soft brown earth with the grass waving above one's head and listening and listen to silence. 
to have no yesterday and no tomorrow, to forget time, to forgive life, be at peace, you can help me. You can open for me the portals of death's house, for love is always with you and love is stronger than death is. Virginia trembled. A cold shudder ran through her, and for a moment there was silence. She felt as if it was a terrible dream. Then the ghost spoke again, and his voice sounded like the sighting of the wind. Have you ever read the old prophecy of the library window? Oh, often, said the little girl, looking up. I know it quite well. It is painted in curious black letters, and it is difficult to read. There are only six lines. When a golden girl can win, prayer out from, prayers, prayer from out the lips of sin, when the baron almost bears, and a little child gives away its tears, then shall all the house be still, and peace come to Canterville. But I don't know what, I, what, that, what they mean. They mean, he said sadly, that you must weep with me for my sins because I have no tears, and pray with me for my soul because I have no faith, and then if you have always been sweet and good and gentle, the angel of death will have mercy on me. You will see fearful shapes in darkness and wicked voices will whisper in your ear, but they will not harm you, for against the purity of a little child, the powers of hell cannot prevail. Virginia made no answer, and the ghost wrung his hands of wild despair as he looked down at his bowed golden head. At her bowed golden head. Bowed golden head, I should say. Suddenly she stood up, very pale, and with a strange light in her eyes. I am not afraid, she said firmly, and I will ask the angel to have mercy on you. He rose from his seat with a faint cry of joy, and taking her hand, in, he, taking her hand bent over it with old-fashioned grace and kissed it. His fingers were as cold as ice, and his lips burned like fire, but Virginia did not falter as he led her across the dusky room. On the faded green tapestry were broidered little huntsmen. They blew their tasseled horns, and with their tiny hands waved to her to go back. Go back, little Virginia, they cried, go back. But the ghost clutched her hand more tightly, and she shut her eyes against them. Horrible animals with lizard tails and goggle eyes blinked at her from the carven chimney piece, and murmured, Beware, little Virginia, beware. We may never see you again. But the ghost glided on more swiftly, and Virginia did not listen. When they, reached at the end, when they reached the end of the room, he stopped and muttered some words she could not understand. She opened her eyes and saw the wall slowly fading away like a mist and a great black cavern in front of her. A bitter cold wind swept round them, and she felt something pulling at her dress. Quick, said the ghost, or it will be too late. And in a moment, the wainscoting had closed behind them and the tapestry chamber was empty. Chapter 6 as I sip a little bit of water very quickly. About ten minutes later, the bell rang for tea, and as Virginia did not come down, Mrs. Otis sent up one of the footmen to tell her. After a little time, he returned and said he could not find Miss Virginia anywhere. As she was in the habit of going out to the garden every evening to get flowers for the dinner table, Mrs. Otis was not at all alarmed at first, but when six o'clock struck and Virginia did not appear, she became really agitated and sent the boys out to look for her, while she herself and Mr. Otis searched every room in the house. At half past six, the boys came back and said they could not find a trace of their sister. They were all now in the greatest state of excitement, I did not know what to do, when Mr. Ode suddenly remembered that, some few days before, he had given a band of gypsies permission to camp in the park. 
he accordingly at once set off for Blackfellow Hollow, where he knew where he knew they were, accompanied by his eldest son and two of the farm servants. The little Duke of Cheshire, who was perfectly frantic with anxiety, begged hard to be allowed to go too, but Mr. Otis would not allow him, as he was afraid there might be a scuffle. On arriving at the spot, however, he found the gypsies had gone, and it was evident that their departure had been rather sudden, as the fire was still burning, and some plate, plates were lying on the grass. Having sent off Washington and the two men to scour the district, he ran home and dispatched telegrams to all the police inspectors in the county, in the country actually, telling them to look out for a little girl who had been kidnapped by tramps or gypsies. He then ordered his horse to be brought round, and after insisting on his wife and the three boys sit down for dinner, rode off to the road off down the Ascot Road with a groom. He had hardly, however, gone a couple of miles when he heard somebody galloping after him and looking around saw the little duke coming on his pony, with his face very flushed and no hat. I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Otis, gasped out the boy, but I can't eat any dinner as long as Virginia's lost. Please don't be angry with me. If you would let us be engaged last year, there would never have been any of this trouble. You won't send me back, will you? I can't. I won't go. The minister could not help smiling at the handsome young scapegrace, and was so, and was a good deal touched at his devotion to Virginia. So leaning down from his horse, he patted him kindly on his shoulder and said, well, Cecil, if you won't go back, I suppose you must come with me. But I must get you a hat at Ascot. Oh, bother my hat. I want Virginia, cried the little duke. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Laughing and they, as laughing, and they galloped on to the railway station. There, Mr. Otis inquired of the station master if anyone answering to the description of Virginia had been seen on the platform, but could not get news of her. The station master, however, wired up and down the line, and assured him that a strict watch would be kept for her, and after having bought a hat for the little duke from a linen draper who was just putting up his shutters, Mr. Otis rode off to Bax Baxley, a village about four miles away, which he was told was a well-known haunt for the gypsies. Here they roused out the rural policeman, but could get no information from him, and after riding all over the commons, they turned their horses' heads homewards and reached the chase about eleven o'clock dead tired and almost heartbroken. They found Washington and the twins waiting for them at the gatehouse with lanterns as the avenue was very dark. Not the slightest trace of Virginia had been discovered. The gypsies had been caught on Brockley Meadows, but she was not with them, and they had explained their sudden departure by saying that they had mistaken the date of Chorton Fair and had gone off in a hurry for fear they might be late. Indeed, they had been quite distressed at hearing of Virginia's disappearance, as they were very grateful to Mr. Otis for having allowed them to camp in his park and four of their number and four of their number had stayed behind to help in the search the carp pond had been dragged and the whole chase thoroughly gone over but without any result it was evident that for that night at any rate virginia was lost to them and it was in a state of the deepest depression that mr otis and the boys walked up to the house the groom falling behind with the two horses and the pony in the hall they found a group of frightened servants, and lying on a sofa in the library was poor Mrs. Otis, almost out of her mind with terror and anxiety. Mr. Otis at once insisted on, ha on her having something to eat and ordered up supper for the whole party. It was a melancholy meal, as hardly anyone spoke, and even the twins were awestruck and subdued, as they were very fond of their sister. When they had finished, Mr. Otis, in spite of his entreaties of the little duke, ordered them at all, all to bed saying that nothing more could be done that night, and they would telegraph in the morning to Scotland Yard for some detectives to be sent down immediately. 
Just as they were passing out from the dining room, midnight began to boom from the clock tower. And when the last stroke sounded, they heard a crash and sudden shrill cry. A dreadful peal of thunder shook the house. A strain of unearthly music floated through the air. A panel at the top of the staircase flew back with a loud noise. And out on the landing, looking very pale and white with a little cask in her hand, stepped Virginia. In a moment, they had all rushed up to her. Mrs. Otis clasped her passionately in her arms. The Duke smothered her with violent kisses, and the twins executed a wild war dance around the group. "'Good heavens, child, where have you been?' said Mr. Otis, rather angrily, thinking that she had been playing some foolish trick on them. "'Cecil and I have been riding all over the country looking for you, and your mother has been frightened to death. You must never play these practical jokes any more.' "'Except on the ghost,' shrieked the twins as they capered about. "'My own darling, thank God you are found. You must never leave my sight again,' murmured Mrs. Otis." as she kissed the trembling child and smothered the tangled gold of her hair. Papa, said Virginia quietly, I have been with the ghost. He is dead, and you must come and see him. He has been very wicked, but he was really sorry for all he had done, and he gave me this box of beautiful jewels before he died. The whole family gazed at her in mute amazement, but she was quite grave and serious, and, turning around, she led them through the opening and the wainscoting down a, near, a narrow secret corridor. Washington followed with a lighted candle, lit candle, which he had caught up from the table. Finally, they came to a great oak door, studded with rusty nails. When Virginia touched it, it swung back on its heavy hinges, and they found themselves in a little low room with a vaulted ceiling and one tiny grated window. Embedded in the wall was a huge iron ring, and chained to it was a gaunt skeleton that was stretched out at full length on the stone floor and seemed to be trying to grasp with its long, fleshless fingers and old-fashioned trencher and ewer that were placed just out of its reach. The jug had evidently been once filled with water as it was covered inside with green mold. There was nothing on the teacher, trencher but a pile of dust. Virginia knelt down beside the skeleton and, folding her little hands together, began to pray silently, for the rest of the party looked on in wonder at the terrible tragedy whose secret was now disclosed to them. Hallow! suddenly exclaimed one of the twins, who had been looking out from the window to try and discover in what wing of the house the room was situated. Hallow, the old weathered almond tree, has blossomed. I can see the flowers quite plainly in the, in the moonlight. God has forgiven him, said Virginia gravely, as she rose to her feet, and a beautiful light seemed to illuminate her face. What an angel you are, cried the young duke, and he put his arm around her neck and kissed her. Chapter 7 <clears throat> Four days after these curious incidents, a funeral started from Canterville Chase at about eleven o'clock at night. The hearse was drawn by eight black horses, each of which carried on its head a great tuft of nodding ostrich plumes, and the leaded coffin was covered by a rich purple pall, on which was embroidered in gold and gold the Canterville coat of arms. By the side of the hearse, the coat and the coaches walked the servants with lit torches, and the whole procession was wonderfully impressive. Lord Canterville was a chief mourner, having come up especially from Wales to attend the funeral, and sent the first carriage along with the little Virginia. With little Virginia. Then came the American minister and his wife, then Washington and the three boys, and the last carriage was Mrs. Umney. It was generally felt that, as she had been frightened by the ghost for more than 50 years of her life, she had a right to see the last of him. 
A deep grave had been dug in the corner of the churchyard just under the old yew tree, and the service was read in the most impressive manner by the Reverend Augustus Dampier. When the ceremony was over, the servants, according to an old custom observed in the Canterville family, extinguished their torches, and as the coffin was being lowered into the grave, Virginia stepped forward and laid on it a large cross made of white and pink almond blossoms. As she did so, the moon came out from behind a cloud and flooded with its silent silver the little churchyard. And from a distant copse, a nightingale began to sing. She thought of the ghost description of the Garden of Death. Her eyes became dim with tears, and she hardly spoke a word during the drive home. The next morning, before Lord Canterville went up to town, Mr. Otis had an interview with him on the subject of the jewels uh, the ghost had given to Virginia. They were perfectly magnificent, especially a certain ruby necklace with old Venetian setting, which was really a superb specimen of 16th century work, and their value was so great that Mr. Otis felt considerably scruple, considerable scruples about allowing his daughter to accept them. My lord, he said, I know that in this country Mortman is held to apply trinkets as well as to the land, and it is quite clear to me that these jewels are, or should be, heirlooms in your family. I must beg you accordingly to take them to London with you, and to regard them simply as a uh, portion of your property, <clears throat> which has been restored to you under certain strange conditions. I am also informed by Mrs. Otis, who, I must say, is no mean authority upon art, having had the privilege of spending several winters in Boston when she was a girl, that these gems are of great monetary worth, and if offered for sale, <clears throat> excuse me, would fetch a tall price. Let me drink a bit of water. Under these circumstances, Lord Canterville, I feel sure that you will recognize how impossible it would be for me to allow them to remain in the possession of my family. And indeed, all such vain gods and toys, however suitable or necessary to the dignity of a British aristocracy, would be completely out of place among those who have been brought up to this severe... Uh, I'll just cut off there. Yeah, sorry, the page just cut off there. Perhaps I should mention that Virginia is very anxious that you should allow her to retain the box as a memento of your unfortunate but misguided ancestor. As it is extremely old and consequently a good deal out of repair, you may perhaps think fit to comply with her request. For my own part, I confess I am a good deal surprised to find a child of mine expressing sympathy with medievalism in any form and can only account for it by the fact that Virginia was born in one of your London suburbs shortly after Mrs. Otis had returned from a trip to Athens. Lord Canterville listened very gravely to the worthy minister's speech, pulling his grey moustache now and then to hide his involuntary smile. And when Mr. Otis had ended, he shook him cordially by the hand and said, My dear sir, your charming little daughter rendered my unlucky ancestor, Sir Simon, a very important service, and I and my family are much indebted to her for her marvellous courage and pluck. The jewels are clearly hers, and I believe if I were heartless enough to take them from her, the wicked old fellow would be out of his grave in a fortnight, leading me to the devil, leading me the devil of a life. As for their, as for their being heirlooms, nothing is an heirloom that is not so mentioned a will or legal document, and the existence of these jewels has been quite unknown. 
I assure you, I have no more claim on them than your butler, and when Miss Virginia grows up, I dare say she'll be pleased to have pretty things to wear. Besides, you forget, Mr. Otis, that you took the furniture and the ghosts at evaluation, and anything that belonged to the ghosts passed at once into your possession. As whatever activity Sir Simon may have shown in the corridor night, in point of law, he was really dead, and you acquired his property by purchase. Mr. Otis was a good deal distressed at Lord Canterville's refusal, and begged him to reconsider his decision. But the good-natured peer was quite firm, and finally induced the minister to allow his daughter to retain the present of ghost the ghost had given her. And when, in the spring of 1890, a young Duchess of Cheshire was presented at the Queen's first drawing-room on the occasion of her marriage, her jewels were the universal theme of admiration. For Virginia received the coronet, coronet, which is the reward of all good little American girls, and was married to her boy lover as soon as she came of age. He came of age. They were both so charming, and they loved each other so much, that everyone was delighted at the match, except the old Marchioness of Dumbleton, who had tried to catch Duke for one of her seven unmarried daughters, and had given no less than three expensive dinner parties for that purpose. And, strange to say, Mr. Otis himself. Mr. Otis was extremely fond of the young Duke personally, but theoretically he objected to titles, and to use his own words, was not without apprehension lest, amid the enervating influences of a pleasure-loving aristocracy, aristocracy, the true principles of Republican simplicity should be forgotten. His objections, however, were completely overruled, and I believe that when he walked up the aisle of St. George's Hanover Square with his daughter leaning on his arm, there was not a prouder man in the whole length and breadth of England. The Duke and Duchess, after the honeymoon was over, went down to Canterville Chase, and on the day after their arrival they walked over in the afternoon to the lonely churchyard by the pine woods. There had been a great deal of difficulty at first about the inscription on Sir Simon's tombstone, but finally... It had been decided to engrave on it simply the initials of the old gentleman's name and the verse from the library window. The Duchess had brought with her some lovely roses, which she strewed up upon the grave, and after they had stood by it for some time, they strolled into the ruined chancel of the old abbey. There the Duchess sat down on a fallen pillar, while her husband laid her feet, smoking a cigarette and looking up at her beautiful eyes. Suddenly he threw a cigarette away, took hold of her hand, said to her, Virginia, a wife should have no secrets from her husband. Dear Cecil, I have no secrets from you. Yes, you have, he answered, smiling. You have never told me what happened to you when you were locked up with a ghost. I have never told anyone, Cecil, said Virginia gravely. I know that, but you might tell me. Please don't ask me, Cecil, I cannot tell you. Poor Sir Simon, I owe him a great deal. Yes, don't laugh, Cecil, I really do. He made me see what life is and what death signifies and why love is stronger than both. The Duke rose and kissed his wife lovingly. You can have your secret as long as I have your heart, he murmured. You have always had that, Cecil. And you will tell our children someday, won't you? Virginia blushed. And that's it. That's the end of the Canterville Ghost. Well, I enjoyed reading it. Um, some parts of it obviously a little bit difficult. You know, these older novels, they hit you with, you know, very... Um, they're, they're not, they don't use a lot of layman terms, and you know, some of the English is a little bit older, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it, The Canterville Ghost. If you have any suggestion for um, public domain books you'd like me to um, 
read, you can always email the show, hello at sleepandrelaxasmr.com. Check out our website, sleepandrelaxasmr.com. That's all for this episode. Thanks as always for listening, and take care.